and I thought I needed, I had a six hour drive coming in front of me, so I thought I better fix this before I go forward. So very carefully, I took my eyes off the road and reached back into the back seat to fix the seat belt. It only took a few seconds and, and I was fine. I turned around and I discovered that my car was pointed at about a 45 degree angle towards the middle ditch. It was too late to recover. You know, if you pull too quickly, you'd probably roll the car. So I just, I shot over the shoulder and into the ditch in this snow. The, in the ditch, it was about two to three feet of snow. How embarrassing. I mean, you know, it was, it was clear visibility, dry pavement and uh, four lane highway. And I go into the ditch of all things. What I remember most about the, this experience, besides the humiliation of going in the ditch, was trying to get out of the ditch. I did what I had always done, and you guys that have been stuck, you, you know in snow you go forward and backwards, you start rocking the car, trying to get out and push forward, and you spin the wheels forward, reverse, forward, reverse, and I got the car rocking, spun the wheels, and all I did was go further down in the snow and further down into the ditch. The snow was too deep, and I just began to spin my wheels. The more I spun my wheels, the further I went down, and the harder I tried, the more ineffective my efforts were. Futility, it was ineffectiveness. Just spinning my wheels, going nowhere. I was stuck. I was stuck. How many of you have ever had a similar experience? I want to know I'm not alone. Okay, maybe you didn't go in a ditch, but you did something else. Okay. Some of you say, that sounds kind of like my life. Stuck in a ditch. Sounds like last year, or maybe it sounds like my marriage, or my faith journey. Spinning our wheels, going nowhere, just going deeper and deeper, into the ditch, stuck, just stuck. Or maybe it sounds like your ministry, or maybe it sounds like our church. Lots of activity, a lot of spinning wheels, a lot of energy expended, a lot of effort, but going nowhere, going nowhere. Are we going somewhere? Are we accomplishing anything? And what are we here for? That's a question we have to ask. What are we here for? We've got this big building. We've got this, all this stuff happening. What are we here for? Our mission, and it's in the top of your program as well, but I'm going to put it on the screen as well. Our mission states this. Eau Claire Wesleyan Church exists to navigate life together in knowing God, representing him well through loving relationships and relevant conversations that encourage people, whether skeptic or seeking or already in relationship with Jesus into becoming devoted, spirit-filled followers of Jesus. Okay, let me read that again. Eau Claire Wesleyan Church exists to navigate life together in knowing God, representing him well through loving relationships and relevant conversations that encourage people, whether skeptic, seeking, or already in relationship with Jesus, into becoming devoted, spirit-filled followers of Jesus. Are we doing that? And how can we be effective? Are we spinning our wheels, stuck generating a lot of activity, or are we effective at fulfilling our mission as stated in that mission statement? Today, what'll you do about it? Eight keys to effective ministry. We're gonna look at a passage as we continue in Unstoppable God, the series in Acts, and I'd like you to turn with me to Acts 14. It's on page 896 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Acts 14, it'll also be on the screen if you want to read there. Acts 14, starting with verse 1. 
At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with the leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul, Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own ways, yet he was not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. I was going to title this message uh, From God to Goat in 60 Seconds, but I, I changed my mind and, and uh, decided to call it What'll You Do About It? And it won't make sense until I finish the message. So stay awake. Here we go. You know, it's interesting as we look at the book of Acts, and Pastor Nehemiah addressed this a little bit last last time. Um, these stories are kind of strange. I mean, it's like all these things happened in the early church, but Luke, the doctor, the one who wrote the book of Luke, selected certain passages that are significant. And so as we look at those, we have to say, what is this about and what is it, how does it relate to us today? Well, this, this account describes effective ministry. In other words, ministry with results, not just spinning Wheels. It talks about ministry with results. It says a great number of people becoming or became followers of Jesus Christ. It was effective. Um, now, before we go on, I want to uh, talk about and contrast two concepts. There are two words. There. The first one is efficient. Efficient, which is doing things right. And the second is effective, doing the right thing. So efficient, doing things right. Effective, doing the right things. And as a church, many, many times, we do a lot of things and we can be very efficient in what we do. But we never really accomplish anything. We're just in this mode of empty activity and staying busy and looking like we're, we're busy and, and doing things instead of ever asking the question, 
Are we effective? We're efficient. We can do all the things we need to do. We can do church and we can do all this without God showing up. But are we effective? Are lives being transformed? Are people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? That's why we have a mission statement to measure not efficiency, but effectiveness. Today, we're going to look at eight keys to being effective and carrying out our mission. The first one, number one, is unity. Unity. It takes teamwork. It takes teamwork. In verse 1, we find Paul and Barnabas, a team, unified, working together. Team is a very, very important concept. In fact, all throughout history, in many different endeavors, we find team. Team. Think about Simon and Garfunkel. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Some of you are wondering, who's that? Okay. Rogers and Hammerstein. The Carpenters. Chicago. Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Okay, those are, those are music groups, okay? How about Mike Holmgren and Brent Farr? Okay, we're getting into the athletics. We know that. Russell Wilson and Doug Baldwin. I had to throw a Seahawk thing in there somewhere today, okay? How about Aaron Rodgers and Jordy Nelson? You know, there's a team. These guys that work together so well, they know what's going to happen. There's a team. They have to be team or they're very ineffective. Superstar baseball players cannot play every position. If they're going to excel in their, in their baseball, they have to be on a team. LeBron James needs to be part of a team to exercise his incredible skills as a basketball player. I don't care how good you are. If you're one on five, you're not going to cut it, okay? You've got to have a team. And that team makes LeBron excel at what he does. Emmy award-winning actors, where would they be without the supporting cast or without the director or even the grips? All the parts of a team must work together in unity or there's no effectiveness. We, we talked about this in the fall. We were going through the book in our connect groups. We call it, it's called agenda harmony. Being in team, relying on one another, realizing that each one of us has a part to play. Now, I've seen many churches that spin their wheels and they're, they're busy, but they're not going anywhere. Why? Because there's disunity, there are disagreements, there are factions, personal agendas and selfish ambition. One of, one of the most appropriate passages for the church is John 3.16, but just as appropriate is James 3.16. James 3.16 says this, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. What does that mean? That means if, if we all have our own agendas and we have envy and boy, I wish I was this and that, instead of coming into unity, there, there we, we find disorder. We find everything you can imagine that's going on because there's no unity. There's no unity. Unity denotes teamwork. And one of the beauties of that is when you talk about team, that elevates the importance of every individual. Every individual, we, we just completed the network seminar and we had uh, 25, over 25 people actually complete that. Discovering spiritual gifts, passions, and how the temperament fits in, all of those kinds of things. The purpose of that was to discover where we fit in ministry. And by the way, ministry is more than just in this, these four walls, it's out there, it's everywhere. But where we fit in ministry of the body of Christ as a team member. And what it does is it shows the importance of your gift and these other person's gifts. One of, the, one, of the, one of the most important parts is not only discovering your spiritual gifts and what you have to do, but 
learning about others' gifts and appreciating them and saying, wow, I don't have that and I can't do that, but wow, look at, look at so-and-so's doing that. So discovering their gift, it's, it's all about teamwork and the importance of the individual. And we don't have time to be exhaustive about that, but it, it was an incredible two-part series and seminar. So unity is the first part, the key to effectiveness, being in unity. The second key to effective ministry is opposition. Opposition, it takes competition. It takes competition. What, are you kidding me? Well, it says in verse two, people stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against them. Verse five says they plotted to mistreat them. Verse 19 says they won the crowd over, they stoned Paul. Significant opposition to them. Now, how does opposition help us be effective? How does opposition help you be effective? Well, when I played competitive tennis in high school, I would prepare for important matches coming up on the weekend by setting up a match and playing against somebody that was much better than me, okay? Whether it was a college student or something, I would try to find somebody that was a lot better than me, and I would prepare by playing. It pushed me and made me work harder, helped me refine my skills and improve. And by doing that, I became more effective. Opposition. And today, we as a church and we as Christians have opposition in the form of competition, co competing ideas, competing truths, competing philosophies, competing loyalties. All of these ideas out there they're, they're, that come at us. And this competition is healthy because it forces us to sharpen our skills, deepen our conviction, and solidify what truth really is. Competition counteracts complacency. See, in America for a long time, Everybody supposedly was a Christian. Everybody believed the same things. And so there was no competition. And all of a sudden, the philosophy over the last 20 years, actually longer than that, that the philosophy has changed. The schools have changed. Professors have changed. All this has changed to a to anti-Christian, ungod, ungodly, godless atmosphere, basically. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, my goodness. We're out now. What's happened to, to our belief system? And we become basically apathetic because there's no competition. There hasn't been anything to fight against. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe that the Bible is God's word? There's an interesting discussion surrounding the, um, the uh, latest judicial appointment to the Supreme Court. And I was watching, watching uh, a report on uh, the the nomination, and they were talking about the different judicial philosophies. Okay, if you followed any of this, you know that there are basically two different types of judicial philosophies. Um, it has to do with the Constitution. Our Constitution was written many years, over 200 years ago. Now, the one, the one stand on the Constitution, they're called originalists or textualists. In other words, they believe that the Constitution you have to figure out what they meant when they wrote it, and then how does it apply to today, okay? Those are originalists and textualists. Then you have the other ones that believe it's a living, changing document, and the Constitution changes to fit the mores and the, the different things that culture is bringing our way. So basically, it's a changing document. And you can see that on the Supreme Court. You've got two different polls. And, and the person that it was nominated is an originalist, a textualist that believes and you have to see what it meant then and apply it. It does not change, it's changeless. Well, the interesting thing is as, as they were talking about this, I turned to Judy and I said, you know, we've got that same controversy in the church. Um, it has to do with the Bible, the word of God. Now we believe 
I'm an originalist or a textualist or inerrantist. I believe that, that the documents were written and they were inerrant in their original autographs. And we need to go back and find out what did the author mean then and how does it apply to us today? The other side says, oh, we're going to just kind of let this thing change and breathe and live. And, and as the morals, morals change and culture changes, we're going to just kind of change the word of God with it. And so you've got the inerrantists and you've got those that, that believe it, that it moves. And that is where the battle lies. And we must understand the battle is there. There's opposition. There are people that are trying to push that. Are all religions the same? There are competing ideas. Do all roads lead to God? And actually, and Listen carefully to this because all roads actually do lead to God. That's a true statement. But then God decides our destination from there. Okay. In other words, we will all stand before God someday. No matter what road we're on, there are only two destinations. God is going to make that decision. Okay. We must understand. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's, he's the only one whereby we can go onward into eternal life. How can you sharpen your skills? You have to have somebody challenge your belief. Competition, challenge, or opposition. And don't be discouraged. Make it an opportunity. There's this really interesting passage in, in uh, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Um, and it says this, Judges 3, 1 to 2. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The Israelites had taken over the land, they had experienced war, and now they're having peace, but he left enough enemies so that people didn't, know, didn't forget how to fight. They had to continue to practice warfare. They had to continue to know how to do warfare. And as, as Pastor Damien talked a little bit about last, last week, we are in a spiritual battleground. There's spiritual warfare going on. And, and we need to understand that that battle is in the, in the heavenlies. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers of the air. And we must understand that that's, there's a battle going on, and we can't lose our edge. When we live in complacency so long, we lose our edge and we forget how to fight. And God says, I've given you weapons of warfare, prayer, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, all of these that are, that are listed in Ephesians 6. So we don't forget to lose them. We need opposition so we don't forget to use them. If we stand up for truth, we may get docked down. And that's okay. Opposition. Thomas Watson, uh, Jr., the chairman of the board of the IBM, said this. Remember this, a man flattened by an opponent can get up again. A man flattened by conformity stays down for good. Let me repeat that. A man flattened by an opponent can get up again. A man flattened by conformity stays down for good. We need opposition so we know how to get up again. Opposition, it takes competition. Now, remember, truth can also produce division. Now, we have unity in the church, but there's division out there. You stand for truth, somebody doesn't like it, that's going to cause opposition. And we see that here. When they preached the truth and spoke the truth, there were those that opposed them. Acts 14, the opposition came from unbelieving Jews. Because of their unbelief, they tried to poison the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. Unbelief. 
It, this, is, this is trying to turn people against truth. Truth will produce division and opposition. Now, what we're concerned about today in our culture is, is relationship. We want to keep everybody together. So political correctness, we don't want to offend anybody. We want to keep everybody happy. The problem is truth offends. And some people are more concerned about relationships than they are truth. And we have to love people, but we can't be more concerned about relationship than truth. We must be concerned about truth. Otherwise, we have nothing to stand on. Relationships. Preaching and the response produced division between believers and unbelievers. And by preaching the gospel, Paul and Barnabas produced division. They were producing an important part of the ministry of Jesus. Now, a lot of people uh, believe in this pop culture Jesus, that he just loved everybody, and he just was keeping everybody happy, and, and he didn't offend anybody. And so if you're not keeping everybody happy and being nice to everybody, um, just uh, you're not like Jesus. Let, let, me, let me read a passage from Luke 12. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus is speaking. Luke 12, 51 to 53 says, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What is Jesus saying? When you prevent, present truth, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. If, if this is true, you either believe it or you don't. And when Jesus said, this is true, and when Paul and Barnabas preached truth, some people believed and some did not believe. It caused division. See, we are either for God or against God. And you look at the extreme polarization of our nation today. You know, it comes out in, in strange forms, especially, especially during the election time, there was this extreme polarization of value systems. And everybody says, let's just all get along. Well, you know what? It won't happen because light does not have anything in common to darkness, good versus evil. There's something uncompromising about truth. And we will face opposition when we hold to truth. Effective ministry will divide and create opposition. It happened then, it happens today. So what? Because of the opposition, it says Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. The third effective key, key to effective ministry, is longevity. Longevity, it takes time. Effective ministry takes time. Most things of worth will take time. The business model of the 80s and 90s was designed to make a quick profit. Merge, sell, liquidate, acquire, the hostile takeovers. All profit-driven. Stockholders wanted quick action, quick results, and quick profits. Then we had the dot-com meltdown and the corporate scandals and everything that happened along with it. And then they behaved for a while until we got to the mortgage crisis in 2007. The new model is now the long-term outlook. How does this work in the long-term? Takes time. Effective ministry takes time to build. It takes time to grow spiritually. It takes time to build relationships. It takes time to establish credibility. It takes time. I remember when Judy and I moved into Lakewood, Washington with our, with our two young daughters and, and bought a house and we were living in that neighborhood. And it took five years before neighbors started including us in their barbecues and, 
and considered that we were okay. Now, maybe it doesn't take that long here. Uh, maybe you guys are nicer. Midwest is friendlier. I don't know. But it took five years of being in that neighborhood before they accepted us. It took time. It, we had to be there five years before we could establish those kinds of more caring relationships with our neighbors. Backyard barbecues. Longevity, it takes time, whether it's a marriage relationship or it's friendships. And you all, every one of you, have people in your sphere of influence that need Jesus. It takes time to build a relationship of trust to the point of earning the right to share your personal faith journey. Longevity, effective ministry takes time. The fourth key to effectiveness is boldness. Boldness, it takes courage. Paul and Barnabas didn't just disseminate information. They preached for decision. They didn't just disseminate information, they preached for decision. In other words, when they preached, it was motivational. They said, this is what you are to do. This is what you are to become. Speaking boldly denotes a confrontation. It's a challenge to make a decision. And that takes boldness, takes boldness. That takes having the conviction that we really do have the truth. It's a challenge to action. For too long, and I overgeneralize here, but for too long, our churches in America have been simply educators and disseminators of information with no challenge to take action. Just, we want to just, just teach. And the theory was, if we feed the sheep, they'll be fruitful, active, and bold. But what we discovered is that if all you do is feed the sheep and all we do is eat and take in, if we don't apply it, take it to action, we just get fat and lazy. Just get fat and lazy. If we don't apply what we receive... Effectiveness requires boldness and courage, and it requires action. We must apply. We must do something with what we've learned. What are we to be courageous about? Stand up for the truth. Speak for the truth. Love the unlovable. Advocate for the helpless. Love those opposed to Jesus. Tell them. And again, our mission statement. I'm going to go over it again. We've got it up again. Eau Claire Wesleyan Church exists to navigate life together in knowing God, representing him well through Loving relationships and relevant conversations that encourage people, whether skeptic, seeking, or already in relationship with Jesus, into becoming devoted, spirit-filled followers of Jesus. Our leadership came up with that after a long time of process. Now you say, I can't do all that. I can't do all that. Good, good. None of us can. None of us can do that. We, we can't fulfill that mission. Which brings us to key number five, dependence. Dependence, it takes faith. It takes faith. In verse three, Paul and Barnabas, it says, speaking boldly, God enabling them. It's, this is reliance on God. Reliance on God. The most important key recognizes that we will be stuck in the ditch. We'll stay in the ditch. We'll keep spinning our wheels, be totally ineffective, totally powerless, unless God does it. God does it. All through the book of Acts, we find time and again the church was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. And they went out. They, they stayed in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit came and empowered them and filled them. And we can't do this on our own. The Holy Spirit must fill us and use us and do this work through us. This is dependence, and we must have faith. Paul saw that the man had faith to be healed. Dependence. Verse 15, he said, we too are only men human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. He, provi he provides you with rain, food, and joy. Dependence. 
on God. We are dependent on God. First Corinthians 2, Paul later wrote, he said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. God's power. Six, Bible-centered. It takes God's word. It takes God's word. Two phrases are used in the story, the message of his grace and the good news. It's the word of God. The, effect of, the effectiveness of this church ministry is not going to be because we have the latest methods and the greatest fads and the greatest sound systems and greatest sanctuary or, the, or auditorium or greatest coffee shop or whatever, whatever we have. It's going to be built because we have the timeless truth, the word of God. I've said many times to the leadership of our church, church, we need to keep ministry simple. It needs to be worship in the presence of God and the word, the word of God. Transformed. The results is we become contagious Christians. The word of God. There's a very interesting passage that demonstrates the power and the, the, the permeative nature of the word of God. Okay? And, and I probably should do a whole sermon on just this passage, but I want to give it to you today. It's Mark 4, 26 to 29. Mark 4, 26 to 29. And Jesus is speaking, and he says this. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night or day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stock, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest is come. Those of you that know agriculture know far better than I how this works. You plant and the seed, all by itself. Well, you water it, you do certain things, the soil, there are certain things, but the life is in the seed. The seed is the word of God in this, what Jesus said, the Bible. And we are called to plant the seeds, scattering it all over the place, and we're compared to soil that receives it. How does that work its way out in, in this mission, in, in, in our church, and in, in what we do? Well, we teach our children the Word of God. At home, we teach our children the Word of God in their connection classes every Sunday morning. We teach student ministries the Word of God in Sunday connection classes. We teach them the Word of God in Wednesday student ministries. We scatter the Word of God all throughout the week in connect groups. Okay, we're in connect groups, and the Word of God is going out. We're studying the Word of God. We're connecting all of that. And on Sunday morning in the message, we're looking at the Word of God. Individually, okay, and this is your part, individually, we ingest the Word of God every time we read the Bible. Every time you open the Bible and read it, critical, we all have a daily devotional time. I don't care if it's five minutes or 50 minutes, but f whatever it is, ingest the Word of God and read the Bible, whether you memorize it or listen to Scripture song. Another thing that you do is you actually spread the Word of God in your community. How? By living out your faith. When it talked about the word becoming flesh and living among us, we are the incarnation of Jesus Christ to our community. And so the living word goes out wherever you live, where you work, everywhere. That's the incarnational power of the word of God. And you get a chance sometimes to speak. You say, wow, that's happening all the time. Yes, so what happens next? According to Jesus, all this going out, all this word, wherever it is spread, where it's incarnational word by living, living the word or spreading the word, speaking the word, whatever it is. Night and day, 
24-7, whether we watch it or not, whether we see it or not, whether we worry or not, the seeds sprout and begin to grow. It's amazing. The Word of God is that seed. Jesus said the soil produces the grain all by itself because the life is resident in the grain. The life is resident in the Word of God. And Jesus says it grows whether we even know it or not. In other words, God is at work. We don't always know. And we can't always see it. But there's an amazing thing that God produces growth. God is at work. Effective ministry is Bible-centered. It takes God's word. Now seven, the seventh is confirmation. It takes supernatural intervention. It takes supernatural intervention. Verse three says, it confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders that healed the men. When people see that the power of God has transformed your life, they'll listen to your words. When people see God intervening and answering prayer, they'll listen to our words. When they see God doing extraordinary things in our church, they'll listen to our words. The word of God confirmed by signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit. They confirm it. Now, these signs and wonders that we're expecting, answers to prayer, it doesn't replace the word of God. It shows the veracity, the truth of the word of God. And if you get, ever get discouraged, you know, when God does a miracle and people don't believe, um, that's okay. Jesus did a lot of miracles too, and a lot of people didn't believe. So he did miracles. In one instance, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And half of them believed, the other half wanted to kill him. So, you know, you don't know what's going to happen, but you don't have to worry about that. You present the word for them to believe. And there's always a time to run. In verse 6, they ran. In verse 19, they stoned Paul, and they didn't give up. They continued to preach. No matter what the result was, they didn't give up. Eighth key is tenacity. Tenacity. It takes stubbornness. It takes stubbornness. Eight keys to effective ministry. Unity. It takes teamwork. Opposition. It takes competition. Longevity. It takes time. Boldness. It takes courage. Dependence. It takes faith. Bible-centered. It takes the Word of God. Confirmation. It takes supernatural intervention. Tenacity. It takes stubbornness. Tony Campolo tells a story about a town where all the residents were ducks. All the residents were ducks. Every Sunday, the ducks waddled out of their houses and waddled down Main Street to their church. They waddle into the auditorium and squat in their proper pews. The duck choir or worship team waddles in and takes its place, and then the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible. He reads to them, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings and you can fly like birds. All the ducks shouted, Amen. And then they all waddled home. What will you do about it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a challenge, <clears throat> a challenge for effectiveness. And I pray, <coughs> I pray that you, <coughs> by your grace, would bring us into places where we need you, where it's too deep, we're over our heads. 
And God, that you would be glorified in us, that you would build in us effective ministry. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?
Sunday I'm going to be preaching a sermon 